Good evening, everyone. Appreciate your prayers. Thank you very much. I hope that God speaks the message so that he wants to speak through me tonight. So we're going to be looking at John's Gospel tonight, and we're going to be focusing on two things. Uh, a crowd that misses who Jesus is when he's standing right in front of them, and we're also going to be focusing on an often neglected um, saying of Jesus uh, that, when properly understood, should lead us to radically change the way that we prioritise our lives and the way that we think of God's provision in our lives today. So the reading is going to be from John chapter 6, if you have your Bibles with you, starting in verse 22. John chapter 6, 22. And it says, On the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So when we... Uh, get to the beginning of this scripture, we have a crowd um, that's desperately seeking Jesus. And the question is, what is going on here? What's the context? Why is this crowd desperately looking for Jesus and where did they come from? And the answer is that this whole portion of scripture is taking place the day after Jesus has performed two amazing signs. And these are two out of the seven of Jesus's miraculous signs included in John's Gospel. And they've just occurred in the last 24 hours. The first of these is the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus has just multiplied five loaves and two fishes to feed a crowd that likely consisted of 20,000 people. And afterwards the crowd say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now we can sometimes skim past this as just an exclamation, Jesus is amazing. But actually this gives us an insight into the minds of the people that were there at the time. Because there's something very specific that they feel that Jesus is fulfilling. Jesus is seen as fulfilling the promise in Deuteronomy chapter 18, and it says this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, 
and he, he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So Jesus here is declaring by his works that the, he is this prophet that was promised by God to Israel to replace Moses. And he does this by providing them bread. So he is the new Moses in this instance. But there is one key difference that's very important and something that we shouldn't miss. And that's that when we look back at Moses in the Old Testament, he delivered God's message of provision to Israel, but God was the one that provided the manna in the wilderness. However, we have a very different situation here because Jesus is not just delivering God's message of provision, but he is the one himself providing the fish and the bread. So in this way, Jesus is showing that he is greater than Moses, and for, because for who was it that was responsible for provision in the wilderness? God himself was responsible for that. So Jesus provides for the people himself, and in doing so, he's trying to teach two very important lessons. The first of these is that he is the God of Israel, here in the flesh, standing in front of them. And the second is that because of this, he himself is the provision from God for these people. So afterwards, Jesus withdraws to the mountain by himself. And this is because Jesus was misunderstood by the crowds. We read that they wanted to take him by force and make him king. Um, and th that this is because the crowd at the time had expectations of a warrior messiah that would lead a revolution against the Romans. They were fixated on their earthly needs at this point, and they were under the Roman rule and they wanted to be free of it. And we must remember, it's easy for us to pass over the fact that the word king is a political term, and this is something that they wanted Jesus to step into. It'd be similar for us today to ask Jesus to become our prime minister. They wanted to bring Jesus into this earthly role where he could make earthly changes. But Jesus withdraws to prevent them from taking him by force. And um, because we know that Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my servants would fight. So the takeaways from Jesus withdrawing are this. Jesus is not influenced or impressed by the crowd. And although this is a small thing, it's very important for us to take in as believers that our Lord, as an example, was not a man that was swayed by a crowd or pushed into anything that he felt was wrong or untrue. Jesus also will not allow himself to be misunderstood. His mission to save all of mankind by dying on the cross is absolutely central to who he is, and he won't allow anyone to take him in any other way. And Jesus is often misunderstood today. There are many cults and religions out there that see Jesus as something that he isn't. But Jesus will not let himself be misunderstood. We read in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus actually went up to the mountain to pray. This is how he withdrew, and he withdrew so that he could pray. And I think this is also interesting, because I think what this shows us is that Jesus prioritised his time with the Father. We know that Jesus was the Son of God, which means that every single word he spoke, every time he interacted with someone, he was blessing them. He was in ministry all the time, every time he was speaking with someone. But even he takes time away from ministry to prioritise time with his Father. And I think that that's also something that's very important for us to take in today, especially those who are in ministry, that they should prioritise time in prayer with the Father and time of rest so that they can minister properly in, uh, later on. So that's the first sign. The second sign is immediately afterwards, and it's when Jesus sends the disciples across the Sea of Galilee, um, and he withdraws to the mountain. And, and they're struggling in the middle of the sea, they're, they're rowing against the wind, and they, they're, they're stuck, essentially. 
and uh, Jesus goes out to meet them and walks on the water and meets them in the middle of the sea. And this is a very powerful sign of his sovereignty over creation. His disciples probably would have known at the time that only God himself walks on the waves. We read in Job chapter 9, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? And the answer is God. It continues and says, Who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south? Who does great things beyond searching out and marvellous things beyond number? Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? And the Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus actually meant to pass by them. We just read there that, that God passes by Job and he can't, he can't get near to him, can't get close to him. And the wonderful truth of Jesus is that in this instance, although Jesus was going to pass by, when they cry out in fear, he turns to them and says, it is I, do not be afraid. He joins them in the boat. And it's a wonderful picture of how Jesus is actually God with us. There's no longer that separation that Job experienced back in the Old Testament. So Jesus is demonstrating to his disciples without a doubt that he is more than just a man. And Jesus has, with these two signs, been trying to teach his followers three key things. The first is that he is God's ultimate provision to mankind for salvation. The second is that he is the prophet who is coming to the world and that he is greater than Moses. And the third is that he is God himself, the God of Israel, in the flesh, here with us. Now that is a very jam-packed 24 hours, and that's a lot, especially for his disciples, to take in. So now we find a crowd, having just witnessed Jesus perform this amazing miracle of feeding the 5,000, and they're desperately seeking him, understandably, perhaps hoping for a repeat performance, some more bread. So verse 25 says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And they're understandably confused because they saw his disciples get into a boat and cross the sea. But they didn't see Jesus follow them. And yet they get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and there's Jesus there. Now, I think that what John does here is he gives us a sense that they are frustrated <coughs> with Jesus and perhaps a little bit annoyed. That, that he was able to evade them and they weren't able to find him. And I think that this speaks of their focus on using Jesus to meet their earthly needs. Their focus at this point in time is on their earthly needs. Verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And I think this is interesting because Jesus refuses to explain how he came to be there. <laughs> And instead answers a far more important question, which is this. Why are you seeking me in the first place? And Jesus has already said it in his words. They want their physical needs to be there, which is not a bad thing on its own. We're told to make our requests known to God regarding the physical and earthly needs that we have in our lives. But here's the problem. This is the issue. They are perilously unaware of their spiritual need for Jesus. This is what he's driving home at. This is what he's trying to get them to understand. And because of that, they are missing the true meaning of the signs that he performs. He's trying to show them who he is, but they're fixated on what these signs can do for them. They have a surface level understanding of Jesus as the one who heals the sick, provides miraculous food. We could make that list longer today, you know. Helps me financially, makes me feel stable in work, gives me that promotion. Like many today, they're missing the true wonder of Jesus, and the true wonder of Jesus, although he does these amazing signs, is who he is. 
The solution to the spiritual darkness that's in their lives is standing right in front of them, but they can't drag their minds away from their earthly needs and desires to see that. Verse 27, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So what is this food that endures to eternal life? Well, this is spiritual food. Ultimately, it's Jesus' provision. It is a relationship with God that sustains the believer. And it ultimately leads to eternal life in him. It is him going to the cross, taking our sins, dying and rising again to conquer death. And what's interesting about this statement that Jesus makes is that he's, he's talking about them working for something. And we can agree that the crowd at this point has gone through quite a bit of effort to find Jesus. You know, they piled into boats, they crossed the sea. When they arrived on the other side, it was probably not immediately obvious where Jesus was. They would have had to have sought him out. But their work, again, was for physical needs, maybe for this miraculous bread, maybe for a new political leader. <coughs> Jesus said that for on him, God the Father has set his seal. And when I read this the first time, I completely missed what this meant. Because we're not used in our modern times to seals. We don't seal anything anymore. Um, but in the New, New Testament times, if someone wanted to verify or authenticate a document or an item to say, this is authentic, this is from me, I guarantee it, then they would seal it. They would put a, a wax or a, or a clay seal on it and they would stamp it with something that was unique to them to say, this is definitely the real deal. Yes. And what, what Jesus is saying here is that the Father has set his seal on Jesus through confirming works and signs that he does. All of these signs that he's doing are to confirm who Jesus is to the people. The Father has up till now been continually verifying Jesus as the Son of God. In other words, Jesus is saying, believe that I will give you this spiritual food because of the signs I am doing. Jesus did not ask his followers to take him at his word. Though he has every right to do that, he's the only man who ever had the right to do that. But he's not asking them to take him at his word. He is consistently pointing to the testimony of his works and the scriptures to prove who he is. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is, has Jesus done a work in your life? Has Jesus transformed your life? Can you look back and point to the change that he's made? And if you can, when you're filled with doubt, do you forget it? It's so easy for us to fall into thinking that Jesus isn't all we need. You know, we lose that promotion or we, we, we don't get... You know, we, we start to struggle financially, or we have sickness, or we have a loved one that we lose, and these are all difficult things. But Jesus has showed us time and again throughout our lives as believers is that he is all we need. And in these difficult times, we need to remember that and look back at that. Jesus is saying today, as he was then, look at the works that I have done. Don't just take me at my word. Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And the question is, what is in the minds of the crowd when they ask this? Have they actually understood Jesus correctly at this point? Because it sounds like they're saying, you know, yeah, okay, Jesus, we agree with you. And the crowd actually use the same word for work in response to Jesus. And in a sense, they're trying to flip it back on him. He said that you need to work for spiritual food. And they're asking, okay, well, what works do you, do you want us to perform? And this is most likely because they believe that the way to please God is to perform the right works. This, is, this was their belief at the time, the works of the law, to be righteous and holy, and that, that's not untrue, but none of us are perfect, no one is perfect, and no one can fulfil the law. 
And therefore, although that is the way, that is one of the ways, there's not any way that they can go because they won't have access to salvation that way. So there's a sense at this point that the card is saying to him, just tell us what you want us to do so that we can get what we want from you. They followed him around, they were annoyed that he moved away, and they're saying, okay, you want us to do these works. What are the works? We'll do them, you give us what we want you to do, what we want. So there is perhaps no interest in an actual relationship with Jesus here. It almost is like a transaction. And the question is, do we treat our relationship with God as a series of transactions sometimes? Praying only for needs to be met, and then ignoring our walk with the Lord. Coming to church, going through the motions, and expecting God to work in our lives, rather than committing everything we have to him, our character, our career, even our physical bodies that we're meant to present as living sacrifices. Jesus gives us everything. He gives us himself. But he expects us to pick up our cross and follow him in return. He asks for us, demands from us, that we give ourselves to him. And this is not a transaction. This is the amazing grace towards sinners that don't deserve to be saved. We owe Jesus everything we have and everything we are. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Now this would be, this is a bit of a real moment really, and this would have been a surprising teaching at the time. Jesus is equating the work of God to believing in the Son. In other words, he's dispelling what they have in their minds of what good works can we do. He's saying, you are saved by faith in me. And we need to be reminded of this truth. Yes, we are in the process of sanctification. Yes, we are called to good works in Christ Jesus. But we have access to the food that endures to eternal life because we believe in him whom the Father has sent, the Jesus, the Son of God. And that is the only requirement the Father asks of us to be saved. Now, the natural outflow of that is good works, of course. We begin to walk in the Spirit. But the only requirement that the Father lays upon us is to believe in the one he has sent, his Son, which is a wonderful truth. Romans 4 verse 1 says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham? our forefather according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And I love the fact that the theology that's later taught explicitly by Paul in this scripture is already in the words of Jesus. It's not something new. All Paul is doing is laying it out for us. Verse 30, they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you, what work do you perform? And I found this puzzling when I first read this scripture because surely this is the same crowd who has already seen Jesus feed them, has already been there at the feeding of 5,000. But actually at this point, Jesus is teaching the crowd, likely in a synagogue, as, Lord, as John later indicates. And although the original crowd would be present here, it's likely that there would be religious leaders and there would be other people that didn't witness the original sign. So we have two groups of people here. We have those who have heard the witnesses of Jesus, maybe most of the people around them are telling them Jesus has done this amazing thing, and they want to see it with their own eyes. But this is not a positive thing. These are doubters. They're saying, oh really? Prove yourself. Never mind the testimony of these people. Prove yourself to me. Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, and that's us. It's a wonderful truth that we have, that we're in that camp. We've heard the testimony of what Jesus has done for us, and we believe in who he is. So that's the first group. The second group are those who were already fed once, and they're hyper-focused, it seems. 
on this physical bread rather than the spiritual provision Jesus is offering. And it's not just bread. Bread in itself is symbolic of their earthly needs. They're hyper-focused on this. So they want the bread again. In verse 31, our fathers, they say this to him, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, why do the crowd bring up manna in the wilderness at this point? And I think it's almost a manipulation tactic. They know that Jesus is a teacher that uses the scriptures. He, he affirms the Old Testament constantly to them to teach about himself. And so what they're doing is they're trying to flip the scales a bit, use the scriptures to prompt him to do something that, he, that they want him to do. So we have this crowd who consists of people who either are seeking, to com uh, seeking a confirming sign, in other words, they're doubting Jesus and testing him, or they're seeking fulfillment of their immediate physical needs, which completely misses the point of what Jesus is trying to do. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus is emphasizing that the original manna was God's direct provision for the people. And likewise, he provided bread for them as a sign of who he is, the God in the flesh. So Jesus contrasts this bread with the true bread, which is himself. And he's answering their request for another sign by telling them that the other sign he will perform is to give life to the world. He does this by giving them the word of God, but he ultimately does this by giving himself on the cross. And he speaks of true bread, and I think that Jesus is really trying here, he's working hard with this crowd to get them to think about spiritual matters rather than physical matters, hence why he says true bread. And what this, this metaphor for Jesus says is that in the same way that physical bread is necessary for our physical lives, that Jesus is necessary for spiritual life, that our spiritual life will die without Jesus. And in this age of creature comforts that we have, and we can be so often concerned for only for the bread that fulfills the smallest of our earthly needs, the little conveniences that we desire so much. I mean, I to give you a, a, an example, I in my previous car, I had an armrest that I loved. And I love driving, but I like to feel comfortable when I drive. And so I would lean against this armrest, and we got this new car. When we got this new car, I didn't have an armrest. And it really bothered me. It really bothered me. I allowed it to really get through to me that I no longer had this armrest to lean on. And this is exactly what Jesus is driving home about. He's saying that, you know, you work for these, you know, the next car I go for, I will probably search for an armrest or look around everywhere for one, right? So I'll work for that bread, right? But we neglect to put in the effort to work for the true bread, the word of God. We neglect prayer, we neglect walking in the spirit and not gratifying the desires of the flesh. And I'm speaking to myself when I say this. Verse 34, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And this part made me laugh. Because I thought to myself, are they still thinking about physical bread at this point? He's tried so hard to get them away from that concept, and yet it seems as though they're saying, you know this bread you keep, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, can I have some, please? And John gives us the sense that this crowd, who have travelled across the sea, are now hungry. And they're still thinking about it. And we might laugh at this, but have you ever been so hungry that you felt at the time that food would solve all your problems? Because I know I have. 
So it's so easy to allow ourselves to completely miss what God is doing in our lives. You know, Jesus is stood right in front of them, ministering to them. But we miss what God is doing in our lives because our hearts are fixed on our own earthly needs at the time. How do we let our earthly needs, our inconveniences, affect our interactions with God? Do we only praise God when we are physically blessed? Do we look to God as a magical vending machine we put in prayers and we get out blessings? Do we fail to focus on heavenly realities, you know, waking up in the morning and thinking about storing up treasures in heaven? Or do we, as soon as things get difficult, physically, financially, emotionally, abandon all of that? And what's interesting about this line I just read here, so they say, Sir, give us this bread always. And in my Bible, this is translated, Sir, the word is curie. And uh, that, that, that word can also be translated, Lord. But it's not translated Lord here, it's translated Sir. And in this context, I think, and this is what the translators are doing, it's become clear that this crowd don't actually believe in Jesus as their Lord. They're saying, Sir, good teacher, prophet, do something for me. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And this is the big moment. Because again, Jesus will not allow them to understand, to misunderstand him. He's trying to dispel all thoughts of physical bread, earthly needs. He's saying, stop thinking about bread. I am the bread of life. And this is actually the first of Jesus's I am statements. I think it's funny that the first I am statement comes from possibly Jesus being frustrated with these people, not being able to get through to them what he's, what he's trying to get them to understand. But what does it mean to never hunger and thirst? Well, it means that if we come to Jesus, we are guaranteed to be fulfilled spiritually. And it's easy for us as believers to just pass over that. Yeah, 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 I've heard that before. I've been taught that many times. Yeah, I get, I get fulfilled by Jesus. But really take it in. You are guaranteed to be fulfilled spiritually by Jesus when you come to him. And all you have to do is come to him. That's the only requirement. So he says, whoever comes to me. And I love this quote from Spurgeon that says, Faith in Christ is simply and truly described as coming to him. It's not an acrobatic feat. It is simply a coming to Christ. It is not an exercise of profound mental faculties. It is coming to Christ. A child comes to his mother. A blind man comes to his home. Even an animal comes to his master. Coming is a very simple action, indeed. It seems to have only two things about it. One is to come away from something. And the other is to come to something. And what he's emphasising is how simple it is. This, this, this requirement is so simple. Just to come to Jesus. And how wonderful it is that we have a saviour that gives us that option. He meets us there at that place in which we bring absolutely nothing to the table. And despite our sin, despite our shame, he satisfies every deepest spiritual hunger we have. Verse 36 says, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. And we've read that the crowd have seen his works, but they fail to believe the gospel. That what the problem is, is that, that Jesus is the ultimate provision for their needs. He is the bread of life, but they're not believing that at this point. They have physically come to Jesus, but they have not come to Jesus as their Lord and as their saviour. And are there not many that physically come to church every week? but fail to accept Jesus as their Lord. And I'm not saying, oh yeah, that one time I prayed that prayer, I, expect, I accepted Jesus as my Lord. I'm talking about every single day of your life. Making sure that he is Lord in your life. Making that decision in your heart that Jesus is going to be Lord over my life. 
And this is also the case with the world today. Jesus remains to this day the most well-known figure of all of history. So the world has seen Jesus. I know that before I was saved, I knew who Jesus was. I even know he died on the cross. I think I knew at the time that he died on the cross for our sins. I think I understood that. But I didn't really know that. I wasn't believing in who Jesus actually was for me and what he's done for me. So I had seen Jesus, but I did not believe, and that is the case with the world today. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And the word all in the Greek here actually includes all things. It's not just all people. So what Jesus is saying is that he is actually the redeemer of all creation. Colossians chapter 1 says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In Jesus alone, all things are reconciled to God. And what an assurance we read just before that he would never cast us out. One of my favourite hymns has this line, He will hold me fast, he will hold me fast, for my Saviour loves me so, he will hold me fast. What a wonderful Saviour. All that is required of us is to come to him and he promises never to cast us out. Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And we looked at the beginning of this study, at how Jesus has been revealing his true identity through the signs that he performs. He's been telling them he is God himself here in the flesh. However, Jesus is also careful to make it clear that his relationship with the Father is that of the only Son of God. He says here that he will do the will of him who sent me. His obedience to the Father is not just an aspect of Jesus, not just an aspect of that reality, it is fundamental to who he is, because he is the Son of God. And he says, raise it up on the last day, and he takes, he takes personal responsibility for this. But who is responsible for the resurrection on the last day? To these people that are listening at the time. God alone is responsible for that. But this is exactly what Jesus is trying to get them to understand. He's trying to say to them, stop thinking about your earthly needs for a second. I am God himself stood in front of you. He says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And here Jesus finally gets explicit. Up until now, he has referred to the Father as him who sent me. And he said that over and over again. But now he says, my Father. He doesn't say our Father. He doesn't say the Father. He says, my Father. He's driving home the point that he is the Son of God. He's trying so hard to get them to understand who he is. But it's only towards the end of this teaching that he does this, and I wonder whether he did that because he knew that perhaps these religious leaders, the moment they started to realise what he was telling them, they would close their minds to what he was saying. And this is the big reveal. I'll read it again. He says, whoever looks on the sun should have eternal life. No, that's not what he says. He says, whoever looks on the sun and believes should have eternal life. And this crowd has followed Jesus because they ate their fill of the loaves. They're interested in what they can get from Jesus, be it food, political power, freedom. And in all this, they haven't stopped to realise who Jesus is. And if they have got an understanding, it is a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. They are not actually 
registering it in their minds. And the irony is that in staying hyper-focused on their earthly needs, they have completely ignored their greatest and most desperate need, and that is Jesus himself, the one who reconciles them to God and saves them from their sins. And because of this, they fail to do the one thing, the only thing that determines their de ultimate destiny, which is believing in Jesus. And this is why he says, whoever looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. So in conclusion, it's easy for us to laugh at the crowd for focusing on physical bread. And I, it, I do find it a little bit funny when you read it. When Jesus was standing right in front of them. But here we have to realise that we see a picture of our own lives. We must take note of the fact that Jesus doesn't say that he is a bread of life. He tells us that he is the bread of life. Nothing and no one else on this earth can ultimately fulfil you. But how easily do we go to something else for fulfilment? That means that your marriage won't fulfil you ultimately. Your children, your job, your house, your car, your close friends. None of these things will ultimately fulfil you. And these are all the things we value most often, but, and they're not bad things in and of themselves. I'm not saying that. These are blessings. But we can let them take precedent in our lives while we let Jesus take a back seat. And we neglect our walk with the Lord. We neglect our prayer life. We neglect the Word of God. We prioritise our time around our own selfish, worldly desires. And we all do it. I'm guilty of this. You know, I really want to watch that TV show. I really want to go to that concert. I want to see these friends tonight. And what we do is, when we've got all of this scheduled, we then go, right, and I'll fit God in here, and I'll slot God in here. And that's a mistake. That's the mistake that we made. That's what Jesus is calling us not to do. And as a result, we starve ourselves spiritually. And then we wonder why we aren't feeling fulfilled in our lives. So this is also a picture of the life of the unbeliever, searching everywhere for that spiritual fulfilment. And I, I mean, I see this in work. People working desperately to work their way up the ladder, more money, more status. Working for the food that perishes. But we've been set free from that, but we have to remember how easy it is. And it is so easy for us to fall back into that. We need to remember the words of that wonderful hymn that says, When I survey the wondrous cross, when I survey the wondrous cross, the provision of Christ for me, what he has done for me, and who he is to me, on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, I count but loss. Nothing in this world matters in comparison. Nothing in this world will fulfil me. And I pour contempt on all my pride. So may God help us to take the words of Jesus seriously here. So that we might recognise that no matter what we face in this life, Jesus was then, he is now and always will be God's perfect provision for us. And he promises to never lose us or cast us out, but to raise us up on the last day to be with him. And this is what it means for Jesus to be the bread of life. That's what it means. <coughs> so may God help us to take that truth in and really understand it and make it a reality in our lives. I want to finish with these words from Paul, who was definitely a man who understood this, that Jesus was someone who supplied his every need and fulfilled him in every way. And it's from Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, and it says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, an, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty, plenty, and hunger, abundance and need, and I can do all things through him who strengthens me.
What a wonderful truth. May God help us to grasp that. Amen.